This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Good morning, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks very much for um, agreeing to talk to me this morning. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Carolyn Evans, um, who is the Vice-Chancellor of uh, Griffith University, a role that she's had since 2019. Carolyn has had an extraordinary career as a lawyer, but also as a legal academic and as a, an academic leader. Um, she is a recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship. She's also been a Fulbright Fellow and has written numerous books on um, law and religion and religious freedom. So I'm delighted to be able to uh, talk to you this morning about your journey as a leader and the, the things that have framed you as, as a, an academic leader. So before we start, um, Studiosity acknowledges the traditional Indigenous custodians of country throughout Australia and all lands where we work and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to elders past and present. So Carolyn, um, I've asked each of the vice chancellors that I've talked to, to bring an object that represents their, um, their academic journey, but also uh, that represents their, um, their own experience as a learner. So can you share with us what uh, you've, uh, you've chosen? I can, I, and uh, it, it's, it's a, a little old-fashioned in its own way. Uh, it's a, the PhD thesis of my first PhD graduate uh, that I supervised. Uh, and for me, that represents a, a number of things. Uh, and one is the incredible importance that I've had both as a recipient of the mentoring and support of others and, of course, as you go across the course of your career, uh, the incredible importance of being a mentor and a support to others, whether that be... PhD student or, or undergraduate students you might be teaching early on, uh, obviously then uh, as you become more senior to more senior folk in the organisation. It also for me represents the incredible importance of the hard fundamental work that we need to do as academics. So there's a lot that's really important about engaging in, in short, sharp, easy to understand pieces with the public. Uh, engaging with governments in terms of policies, uh, doing things in a, a, an agile and quick way. But one of the things that we as the academy bring as compared to management consultants or uh, you know, public servants or, or other people who all do legitimate, interesting things, business people in these sectors, I think is based on a, a deep and thorough level of expertise in a particular, often relatively narrow area. Uh, and the work that one does in doing a PhD or writing a very detailed book or whatever it might be, uh, to really plumb the depths of a particular topic, to think about it top to bottom, inside out, uh, and then over the course of your career to help others to do the same sort of intellectual apprenticeship, I think is absolutely fundamental to understanding both what we bring to our teaching, what we bring to research and indeed what we bring to the broader public that is distinctive and valuable. Uh, as I say, at some level, it's quite an old fashioned thing to bring a, a paper bound book and it doesn't represent the modern university. But this 
the, the writing of theses have been going on for hundreds of years within um, universities. And I think they still have a really critical place and that deep detailed thinking and that apprenticeship into scholarship, uh, I do still think remains the foundation of everything we do. And, and the final thing I'll say is uh, it was an international student, student from Ethiopia. Uh, and I think that's also been an incredibly important part of my journey is the great uh, joy learning uh, interpersonal growth on both sides that one gets either traveling oneself to somewhere else and to, to learning uh, and about more about that place or by welcoming people from around the world into your own university into your own intellectual journey uh, that's uh, is still despite everything and despite all the challenges it brings I, I do believe in the global academy so just tell me a bit more about the global academy and and to what extent do Australian universities uh, encompass that idea of a global academy? Well, I think Australian universities have been for certainly all the time I've been uh, involved in universities and indeed to some degree uh, for, for a few decades before that, right on the forefront of globalisation in a really positive way. Australia uh, is a long way even from the places that we're close to. <laughs> uh, how many European countries you could dash across in the time it takes us even to get to Singapore um, or even to New Zealand from some parts of Australia. So it would be very easy for us to become parochial, narrow, um, interested only in a set of fairly limited ways of thinking about the world. And I think it's greatly to the credit of Australian universities, university leaders, uh, that instead we've, we've embraced the world and Australian academics uh, by the time during COVID has been on have often been trained elsewhere, like me, done their PhDs overseas or indeed are people who come from overseas into our universities, being nationals of other countries. We get out, we get on planes a lot, we deal with jet lag a lot, uh, but we engage with that global academy and we welcome students from around the world into our universities in, in much more significant ways than most countries. Uh, and all of those things can be controversial, all of those things can be challenged, all of those things have risks. But the life of the mind uh, really requires a, a strongly anti-parochial view. That doesn't mean you don't take national interests seriously or the interests of your community seriously, but it's informed, it's enriched, it's challenged by a deep understanding that people do things differently, think differently, sometimes have better ideas than you, sometimes uh, are a warning sign of what sort of things your society might face if it goes down certain pathways. So I, I fear that we're possibly getting back to a fragment, fragmentation for, for good reasons in many ways of, uh, of people who are a scholarly contemporaries and, and, and the same discipline across different countries. And we will lose something if that happens, if, if we end up fragmenting the world into to several parts. Um, there will be some benefits, and I do I understand all the national security risks and all the things that we need to be thoughtful about, but we should be conscious of and articulate the cost to doing that as well. Let's go back to your undergraduate, um, your time as undergraduate student at Melbourne University studying law and arts. Did that in any way shape your your sense of what university was like and you've carried it across to um, being a Vice-Chancellor? No, it absolutely did, and uh, again, in a number of ways, but a couple were fundamental. I mean, I came from a fairly working-class family in the outer, outer, outer suburbs of Melbourne, uh, and I found Melbourne Uni really very confronting when I arrived there, and particularly the law school. Uh, and there were a lot 
a lot of students from a very small number of very privileged schools, mainly private schools, a couple of the selective public schools. Uh, they lived in similar areas. They knew similar people. Uh, there was a lot of assumption that everyone had a lot of money uh, and that they could uh, go, you know, spend money in various ways, that they maybe, that working was something you did to develop your career rather than because you needed money, which I absolutely did. Uh, and I found that all very confronting and quite difficult and it made me feel quite alienated for I you know, wondered whether I would stick at university after the first few months quite lonely um, would be another thing um, and, and I got engaged in student life I, I knew one person in the law school the year above me um, who was involved in the debating society and I he came from my part of the world there weren't many people from that part of the world that we debated against each other so he invited me to get involved with the debating society and then I got involved with mooting and then I got to know people and then I felt you know much more part of the social milieu and I'm just good at those things so uh, you, know, you, you don't need to have hundreds of friends but you do need to have a network so it I've certainly carried with me the importance of trying to make sure that universities are open are inclusive recognize that people have come to them with different marvellous experiences uh, you know it's really important that we have those diversity of experiences but that there will be things that get in the way and whether that's uh, as simple or as challenging as not being physically accessible to people with wheelchairs and when I taught at Oxford that was a, a huge issue because you had a lot of very heritage buildings and um, you know various points I really had to go into bat pretty hard for uh, people with mobility problems uh, or whether that be people who don't have the same money as everybody else or who wear religious garments that make them stand out from others. How can we make universities as inclusive uh, and welcoming places as possible? So that was one really big thing. Uh, and I think then the second and probably more positive one was law school was hard. You know, it was really intellectually demanding. That was the other thing that I, I'd, I'd always been top of the class and I'd always found uh, learning a joy and easy and um you know, that, that wasn't ever a challenge for me. But, of course, you go to somewhere like Melbourne Law School, everyone was top of their class and everybody did well. And the, the, the pace and the expectation of learning accelerated enormously. You know, I found that quite confronting. I found, am, am I good enough for this? Uh, but it's also really committed me to thinking intellectual rigour is important. Uh, we should help students with that we shouldn't just throw them in the deep end and assume that they'll all be able to swim but nor should we stop ourselves uh, from challenging them at some point to be able to swim in the deep end unaided uh, and I think that's incredibly important too so there's that real balance they're trying to make sure people are welcomed that people feel supported that uh, universities are open to a variety of, of people from a variety of backgrounds but not then using that as an excuse for low expectations, uh, either of, of yourself as an institution to support such people, uh, but also you know, to try and make sure what we're doing really is intellectually rigorous. So was your experience at Melbourne, did that provide a, a good foundation for you to understand and be successful at Oxford as well? Look, it's the same sort of sense of privilege and elitism. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a whole new level uh, at that. Um, and I'd been a practicing lawyer for a couple of years in between. I think actually that helped also um, to, to give me a, a, probably a greater degree of confidence, funnily enough, at Oxford than I had at Melbourne. I've been uh, through more of my imposter syndrome um, at Melbourne. Uh, still, I think anyone who goes to Oxford experiences 
that, you know, uh, so many Nobel Prize winners and prime ministers and extraordinary place. Um, and it was definitely, again, challenging at different times. One of the things that was good was that I was part of an international network there. Uh, and so there were lots of Canadians and South Africans and New Zealanders and you know, people would, would come together and we were all new in the city and all of us lived in the city. So people were open to making friends. So in some ways that was better. Uh, and I worked out fairly quickly, having had the experience at Melbourne that some degree of things didn't exist, you had to create them. And again, a bit of time in legal practice was good there too. So I was uh, elected as the student representative, the, the research student representative on the law board at Oxford within the first few months of getting there. I turned up to the meeting to vote. I was the only one there. So um, <laughs> I, I ended up being the person, but there'd been no orientations. So I thought, well, we better run an orientation for new PhDs. And that continues to this day and set up a whole program to bring research students together uh, and I, I suppose that's a, a little bit of the attitude I brought into my roles in universities too there's no point sitting on the sidelines complaining about it uh, if you can do something about it get on and it wasn't good enough uh, it could be made better it would have been nice if the faculty had have been bothered to do that but they hadn't at the time so we got started and then that encouraged faculty members who really were supportive but hadn't seen a framework for doing that to support us and within a year or two it had transitioned in as it should have always been to, to being run by the law faculty itself. So you're coming to Griffith being a vice chancellor in, in a university that that has always uh, valued inclusion uh, certainly supports diversity but also has high aspirations. Yep. What's it been like leading, leading a, a multi-campus complex university in a town where there are other universities that are you know oh yes you know if you want to study law you go heck to I if you want to study engineering you go to Z so that that's sort of always being the, the one that's different but in fact the one that from my experience having taught there um, is probably the most exciting yeah well it has been exciting uh, it's a great honor to lead a university uh, and it, it's enormously challenging. Uh, it has been incredibly difficult during the COVID years and, and some of the things that, that the combination of the COVID years and government policy forced on us. But uh, I, you know, I had a retiring professor ask me at the start of the, the, the year, if, if you'd known then what you know now, would you have still said yes when they offered you the role? I said, yeah, I mean, absolutely, unambiguously. It's a fabulous university. It's on a real upward trajectory. Uh, and one of the things I think I've perhaps been able to bring to Griffith is to help us to have a confidence about that difference and to not see that as something embarrassing, but to see that as something to be celebrated. Uh, during the 1970s, when Griffith started up, uh, there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> since we've been a fairly hippie place, uh, it was a bushland setting and uh, a lot of people who'd you know, escaped places that were more established and more traditional who wanted to do things in a different way. We taught environmental science. Uh, it was crazy stuff. Uh, we had modern Asian studies as one of our four foundational groups. You know, goodness, what sort of nonsense was that? Uh, and yet it's, it's, of course, extraordinarily prescient. And some of our commitments, like our environmental commitments, which go back absolutely to day one, to, to before day one, uh, now are something we say the time has come and we now have great credibility in that area. We have great credibility around social justice. So let's not hide that 
under a bushel. Let's celebrate that. Let's make that something that we're all proud of. And, and you will hear hear all the time from people at every level of the organisation. Griffith is a values-led organisation. Uh, and that's not something we just put on the website because it's sexy at the moment. That's not something we slip somewhere into the strategy. That's the, the first element of our strategy is that we're a values-led organisation. Uh, and that permeates our teaching and our research and the way we do corporate services and we try you know, for everything. Do we fall short? Of course, all the time. You know, when you aspire high, whether that's intellectually or in terms of the values that, that you want to live by, uh, you're bound to sometimes not make it. But goodness, it, it pushes us, uh, us all. Uh, and we are now increasingly seeing that in terms of the sort of staff who want to come and work here and indeed the students. And we, we have an unambiguous pitch to a generation that cares a lot about these issues. This is a place you come to, our slogan at the moment, uh, if you don't want to, don't just want to make it, you want to make it matter as well. Uh, and that's in our DNA. And I think increasingly students are seeing that as a real positive. Well, let's let's actually focus on, on the student experience. And we talked briefly about how your, your experience of feeling um, uh, not, not included in, in the sort of zeitgeist of, of Melbourne University. Um, what, what's the student experience like at Griffith now? And given that this sort of moved back to, back to campus, it's, it's really for some students, even though they're in their second and third year, they're starting all over again. So look, Queensland was lucky compared to some parts of Australia. I have to say that the, the lockdowns weren't as severe or as long. You couldn't move across the border, <laughs> and uh, we, we have a Gold Coast campus that sits right there on the border. Never knew we had 770 students in northern New South Wales until suddenly none of them could come across that border for a long time, and our international students. So definitely 2020, 2021, uh, the campuses were very deserted. I think now, now it's much better. Uh, Students are back, the libraries are full, the cafes are full. You know, I, I've never been happier to have to stand in queue for a sandwich for, for so long I ended up having to abandon the line and, uh, and head back for a meeting. That, you know, it's just wonderful. Exactly where that's going to settle and what the new student experience is, I think is still open. And I think keeping it a bit open and a bit fluid rather than trying to lock everything down immediately is good. We've learned a lot about online teaching. We've learned a lot about how to do that quickly. At Griffith, there's at least been parts of the university that have always known how to do it well. Uh, but that that learning is more widespread now. So we're really wanting to stop and say, take some time to think about what do we do wholly online? What do we do that's a mix of online and face-to-face? -face, and what then do we do? What parts of those do we do online? And how do we make that a really high quality experience? Um, and what do we only do face-to-face? There's almost nothing you only do face-to-face -face these days. There's always at least a high-quality LMS in the background and normally at least some online materials. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think you want to start locking things in stone immediately because we're all still working possibilities through, and that's exciting. You want to give people a bit of room to experiment. Uh, but I think it's clear to us that there's a group of students who only wanted to study online, and even before COVID, our third-largest campus was our digital campus, campus in the cloud. Uh, so you've got to do that well. And I think COVID has helped us to think about not just presenting classes well, but how do you present a university experience well mm. online? How do you keep social events? How do you do um, employability activities? How do you make sure people's welfare is being looked after online? Perhaps we were, you know, weren't as good at that. And I think we're getting better. And I think we will get better. 
Um, and then the mix, how do you earn the commute? Uh, particularly, say we've got cars, campuses spread all over southeast Queensland. Some people are travelling a long way. Some people don't have a lot of money. Do things with other students, with industry, with professors. Uh, they're the bits you want to have on campus. And then how do you wrap a good campus experience around that? So that's still in flux uh, and we're still excited to be exploring those things. But there will definitely be a better online experience uh, and then really being thoughtful about what a, how we ramp it up a, a step more for the on-campus experience as well. So given that learning is social and that part of the, it's the, it's the extracurricular activities that for some students are the reason they come to campus, how, how can we get students back on campus? Because that, that not only getting students back on campus, getting them to stay on campus rather than sort of just have that transactional relationship, go in, take my class and then go home again. So learning is a mixture of social and individual. Uh, I think we should recognise that. You know, as a law student, I spent long hours with books and back in the day when we had those um, and cases and just reading in the library. And, you know, you can read yourself into a lot of learning and you can, you can learn in non-social contexts. And for some, again, we have a, a, a large group of neurodiverse students that actually can be a better environment to do that in, though... Over time, particularly those going into professions, will need to learn how to engage um, with a wider group. I also think we need to look well, when you, what you've outlined as this. This is obviously the good experience for students. Is very much uh, it can be a nostalgic experience that older people say that happened for me. That was good when I did it, and therefore that must be good for this generation of students. I think we need to be thoughtful about assuming that that's the case. And I'm, I'm caveating all of this heavily. I will come to the fact that I do think it's important to have students on campus and in classrooms and how we might do that. But I'm conscious we have a lot of students who have young children. We have a lot of students who are working 20 or 30 hours a week. We've got a lot of students who have a long commute to get to campuses. So just assuming, yes, everybody sort of wants to be in the play and, and do volleyball and, and come to classes and make friends for life, that might work really well for a group of 18-year-olds from middle-class families. Many of our students are 18-year-olds from middle-class families. That's all good. How are we going to have the right experiences for everyone, which might not be the same as good experiences for those students? But I think we are actually going to have to proactively start going out and uh, explaining the benefits to students of the face-to-face -face experience, making sure that we can back those up. Because if, if they're just wandering on into a classroom and somebody is droning on at them as they scroll on a whiteboard uh, and then they all go again, yeah. How, how, how hand on heart can we tell them that really was worth the, the two-hour bus ride? So we've got to make sure that the teaching here is good. We do have to have uh, really support our student societies. Uh, we can't do all of this from the top. The best you know, students are often the best people for knowing what other students need or want. Support those financially, support them in other ways um, with leadership training and development as well. Uh, and we're putting, at, at Griffith, we've put some money into each of our campuses to um, what we've called our campus activation funds and we're leaving it to the different campuses to work out what might work best for that and some are having a maqueta day where there's lots of stalls and food and activities others are having live music at different points others are bringing in food trucks and uh, you know the, the different campuses have their own communities their own demographics their own field but I think again we're going to have to continue to just put some modest funding 
into creating reasons for people to come on campus because I do think once they do and start connecting with other students and start seeing the way classes are different when students are engaged, uh, for most students, they will see the benefit of that. So what I'm hearing you say is that, in fact, and I agree with you, it isn't a one-size-fits-all. It's got to be it's got to be a campus experience that acknowledges the different life challenges and possibilities for students, the different learning styles for students. And that's actually got to be understood. And then the resources have got to be behind, um, behind those students to make them feel, this is a safe place for me to come, but it's all right for me to actually navigate it in different ways. Yeah, uh, we, we say student experience, we should say student experiences uh, and I, I used to run a, a very highly successful professional master's course. Yeah, th those people were all in work. They didn't need um, tennis courts or uh, even medical or childcare. That was all dealt with in their normal life. What they really welcomed, though, was at the end of, of each course, a, a wine and cheese session with some people who were leaders in the field that they were studying. That, for them, was what what they needed, and at the time, this is the old day, um, many of them in work wanted their um, materials courier to them. Mm -hmm. And in a university, they said, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't, do well, why don't we do that? We were actually charging those students a lot of money. They were clear that they were the two things they wanted, industry engaged, social event, and their materials courier. Well, if that's what they want, let's give it to them. Um, yeah. And that's not necessarily what we would do for all the undergraduates because they didn't particularly want that and there was no particular reason for doing it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, we really do have to segment the student experience. Can we now just move our discussion on um, to the idea of reimagining higher education? We've, uh, I've just come back from visiting some universities in, in the Netherlands mm. and talking to some people in Sweden. And this is a transitional moment in higher education around the world, and also working with a number of uh, UK senior leaders. What, what do you think, what, what would be your input into a discussion about reimagining higher education? I think this is a moment where as a society, is, and there's higher education globally, and there's higher education in Australia. So let, let me start with Australia. Uh, I think we need a fundamental questioning of what we want for our population by way of education beyond basic schooling. Uh, there's always a temptation to talk about this as a zero-sum game. Oh, there are people going to uni who should be going to TAFE or who should be doing trades. The people who get most left behind in Australia are actually the people who fall outside that zero-sum game but never get mentioned, which is the people who actually don't have any education post-school uh, and particularly those who've left school before they finish. Um, so really thinking about what governments and what we as a society want across the full swathe of our population by way of education, by way of training, on the job support, entry, and, and then thinking about universities' role in that we, we aren't the answers to everything. And that can be a bit of a problem in Australia. Oh, we should, we should do more and more and more. Um, you know, why, we, we, in, in my view, actually, we should be really supporting and bolstering our TAFEs, um, who, which uh, instead of trying to sort of keep stretching universities to do the same thing, that it would actually be better to get some specialist vet and TAFE to do. Uh, we should be thinking about pathways 
in and through TAFEs into universities, but not just, you know, not only, that's if, if we see them in that way, a whole bunch of people who are not interested in or suitable for university study will then, then be deprived of TAFE. So TAFE stretches is starting to stretch the other way, you know, being too much a replica of universities when actually it'd be better to, to sort of think about that in real house senses. So I think you will see, uh, and it will be a positive thing to see universities even more connected with the outside world. Uh, there's a temptation to talk about this as though it's new and shiny and exciting. It's not. It's been going on for decades. I mean, ask any medical school uh, whether doctors ever manage to go, any education faculty, they talk to like student teachers have never gone into the classrooms, have been going into classrooms for decades. Uh, but there have been whole areas of university where there has been little engagement. So what used to be more of a niche activity for professional schools, I think will start to become much more uh, commonplace, it, it really a baseline. It will no longer be a distinguishing feature for universities. How well you do it will be distinguishing, but uh, real industry engagement won't be. I would hope, and I'd like to see us in some ways go back to the, the foundational roots that were very much part of life here at Griffith, uh, which was to recognise the importance of interdisciplinarity. Uh, and uh, there is a place for narrow and deep. Uh, you, know, you, you really do want your doctors to be really well trained as doctors and your engineers to be really well trained as engineers. Um, but both doctors and engineers with good communication skills, for example, is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, economists with a bit of a sense of history, uh, people who, who are going to be leaders in the health system having some sense of data analytics. That doesn't all have to happen at the one moment in time. That doesn't all have to happen during an undergraduate degree, though we're certainly looking at ways people can get a greater breadth of experience there. Uh, but when, again, as we think about what we owe the whole population, that's also over the whole lifetime. And so how we manage to engage people with the right sort of skills and the right sort of knowledge for the different points in their lives. The really tricky challenge that I see is uh, as online learning becomes more prevalent, and we'll, and we'll see where that shakes down. You know, there's always an overhyping of what's gonna happen and often that doesn't happen. Um, we'll probably see some very big global brands and some of them will be universities, but some of them as we're already seeing with things like LinkedIn learning and so forth won't be. Universities have in Australia at least, but in many parts of the world relied heavily on internal cross subsidizing. Uh, and so expensive things to teach are being subsidized by more things you can do cheaper at slightly higher economies of scale. Uh, research has been cross-subsidised by teaching, domestic students have been cross-subsidised by international students. Uh, and if there's one, one sentence that rings in my mind from an industry breakfast I ran once that it had one of our alumni back to was, uh, when, where, where I see cross-subsidies, I see room for disruption. Uh, and there is you know, an entirely plausible scenario where the cheap and easy and scalable and global get picked up and picked off uh, and you know they can put a little bit more money in because it's not cross-subsidising and give students a pretty good experience. And universities end up being, you know, having the social responsibility to do the expensive, the um, locally specific, the accredited, uh, and the, the, the financial burden of that becomes harder and harder. That's going to require both universities, but I think also governments to do some hard policy thinking to work out 
do we actually want that to you know is that is that a good thing is this just a customer market where if a student wants to jump online and do some credentials the government should support them in whatever way to get whatever credentials the student finds useful and you can see the argument for that but if you're going to do that what about the things we really need as a society who done rigorously to a certain standard and to an Australian level of competencies it, you know, if, if, if we're just going to go for a very market-driven approach at some point, there are going to have to be some very difficult thought-through, joined-up conversations about what that means um, in policy terms, in university structure terms, uh, in government funding terms. So one, one, um, we've moved from the, the work-ready to the life-ready, um, but at the same time, there is that sense of accountability because it's taxpayer taxpayer money but that that scenario that you that you described then um, it, it's 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 quite utilitarian and quite um, you know and, and there is a sense of romanticism about higher education you know well I, I come from the humanities and social sciences so <laughs> but but how do you how do, how do how do you as a vice chancellor influence policymakers and politicians not to have a purely instrumental view of higher education uh, about short-termism short as well. No, I absolutely agree. And I do think this is one of the differences that universities could and should and mustn't abandon our commitment to and our rhetorical public articulation of that uh, education is different to training. Um, it can include elements of training. Training is useful. Training is good. Um, you know, there are things we train our students in professional degrees to do that they need to do. But that simple short-term thinking, oh, let's just inject them with a, a little bit of job-ready skill, put them into that job, and then if that job falls over, we'll, we'll inject them with a little bit more of a different job-ready skill, and if that job falls... Uh, yeah, that education is much more holistic. It, it is about life. It is about uh, not just training people, people for jobs, although it is, and I don't think we should shy away from that um, but it's also about good citizenship it's also about being members of local communities in a, a positive way I think it's about democracy about having a, a healthy and robust democracy so I mean one of the things we should do as vice chancellors is certainly acknowledge and work with government in terms of our role with preparing the workforce of the future but to continue to make the case for something that is broader and deeper than that and not just subsidized by little snacks of learning um, that are produced sometimes by private interests that are private interests, uh, not necessarily always the, the broader interests that I've articulated there. Uh, I make that case regularly and publicly. Uh, and one of the things that really interests me is that there's a lot of support for that notion also from the business community and from industry. So uh, I was speaking at a panel recently where I made that point to a group of people who've been very focused on how do we fix the short-term skills gap. And I understand why they are, and, and, you know, I am too, and we should be part of that. So, but let's not get so focused on that that we forget the bigger part. Uh, and, you know, the number of people leading engineering firms and IT firms, you know, very... Um, skills-oriented places that came up afterwards said, yeah, that's that's so important. So I think as le university leaders, we shouldn't be shy about saying that and to, to, to rally support outside the university sector to say, actually, the employees we want will have a depth of understanding, will have a flexibility, a critical thinking set, an agility of mind 
um, that does require a bit of a longer, deeper, more multidisciplinary, more thoughtful education. You haven't mentioned anything about the civic purpose of universities. Griffith is central to a number of communities and, and plays particularly in the Logan, Logan region, but also the Gold Coast region. Sig really significant purpose of, you know, giving people a chance. What's, yep. what's the future of the civic purpose of a university, do you think? Uh, and, and I would actually say some of that civic purpose is some of what I have been saying. It may not be local civic purpose, but it, there's a, a broader national civic purpose as well around democracy, community, um, and so forth. Uh, it, it, but this is one of the reasons that I think online uh, will absolutely have its place. But the, the university as an anchor institution, as a pathway to attainment is incredibly important. And you mentioned Logan, which for those who don't know, it is a very... Uh, vibrant, multicultural, young, growing, but challenging community with the much lower levels of um, employment, of income, and, and higher incidences of some um, uh, some, th some things we might not want as a society. So that's really important. But even the Gold Coast, which is a large city and a thriving one, until universities actually started physically in that area, had much, much lower levels of attainment than Brisbane, just an hour up the road. So location is important. Um, it does make it, it easier for people who can't, again, at a very blunt, trivial, well, not trivial level, but trite level, you know, if you can't afford public transport, if you can't afford a car to commute long distances, having a university in your local region is important. Uh, it allows you to focus on areas of importance to that community. So our two highest ranking subjects are nursing and tourism and hospitality. We rank two and three in the world on those. Uh, and they were a focus of the Gold Coast community, health and um, tourism and hospitality. They're two big industries on the Gold Coast. So, you know, we've really worked to become expert. Uh, marine engineering is one of our other uh, very highly ranked areas. Uh, and again, for the Gold Coast, that's absolutely critical. So, you know, I think they're, is a lot of um, opportunity for universities. And we create jobs uh, and not just professor jobs, but jobs uh, in gardens and cleaning and clerical and student support and um, you know, data analysis and you know, everything you can imagine in those communities. And normally good quality, reasonably high paid jobs with, with good conditions. So uh, yeah, it's important in an area like Logan and the Gold Coast is critical in some of the regional and rural areas. But, um, you know, again, you're always balancing these things with a, a, a real connection to your local community, but an openness to the world. So, so I sometimes talk about it that uh, the trees that have the widest branches have to have the deepest roots. Uh, and both of those things are, in fact, mutually reinforcing. Last question. What advice would you give to your younger self about leadership and about being a successful learner? So it's always... You know, hard as a go back and say, oh, we you know, do this differently, or we would have, because the things that you've done make the person that you are today. Uh, I, you know, I'm a very self critical person and, and have a lot of self doubt at various times. And at a level, I'd say, well, you know, should go back and say, don't worry, it's all going to turn out okay. <laughs> and uh, times that were hard, you know, being at home with young kids and being in casual work and not being sure if my career was ever going to take off. It, you know, it would have been nice to have someone say, it's okay, just enjoy this moment in time because there will still be a, a career at the end of that. But by the same token, you know, if I wasn't self critical, would that, you know, would, would, has that been part of what's led to the success that every time 
when I finish this talk, I'll go away and I'll think, now, should I have answered that question differently? Could I have done this better? Uh, and that will mean the next time I do one of these, I'll do them, you know, a, a little bit better again. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I would, if I suppose if I could say anything, it would be, um, you yeah, have faith that it will be okay. But I actually think maybe I'd just tell my current age self, shut the hell up. Um, younger me did okay and um, you know you, you have to make that you, you can't skip stages in the journey uh, certainly listen to a lot of advice from other people who've made, who who had leadership roles and um, I would certainly encourage that for people and for people who are interested in leadership I guess the advice I'd have from my experience is volunteer to do hard important things that will have clear benefits for the institution and then make sure the institution recognises and knows about those benefits. Uh, be prepared to push yourself a little bit past your comfort zone um, without being looking like you're just sort of stupidly ambitious and, and not self-aware. Uh, and particularly perhaps for women and for, for people in groups that haven't always uh, seen themselves in leadership roles. If you're thinking about applying for a job or opportunity or promotion, don't compare yourself to a mythical, most perfect dean possible, most brilliant head of school imaginable, somebody with every virtue of every vice chancellor. Compare yourself to actual people um, in those roles and say, you know, do you think you are or within a year or two could become as competent as those people? Uh, and that will often give you a better sense of whether you are ready to take those roles on or not. And what a great way to finish our conversation. Carolyn Evans, thank you for your time this morning. I've enjoyed it and I'm sure the people that listen to it later will also enjoy it. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I'll see you anon. Indeed. Thank, thanks, Ajit. Good fun. Okay. Bye. Bye. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.